0: Shall we begin? Shall we begin? Let's begin now.
1: I'm Jim Martin, this is Adventure Rider Radio, and on today's episode, we're going to talk lithium-ion batteries to lose weight, GPS made just for motorcyclists, and we have a story about riding with Russian bikers. Stay with us, we got a good one for you. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter, too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Dressed Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron B-Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. The crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves, so they know what you want when you're exploring the world. Visit them at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using this unique strapping system, and it's easy to switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. You've got to check out the buckles, the straps, the whole bit. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com Hi, I'm Sam Manicum, Nick Sanders, Terry Borden, Sandy Borden, Jack Borden, Jack Borden. Graham Field,
2: Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray, David Peterson, Rachel, Ed March, Glenn Hickstead, Dr. Gregory W. Fraser, Dave Barr, Michelle Lamphere, Tiffany Coates, Herbert Schmitz, so Brett, Brett Zoe Cano,
3: Nathan Millward, Graham Hoskins, Joe
1: Ruff, Jeremy Creaker. Simon
2: Thomas, Lisa Thomas,
3: Simon Pavey, Grant Johnson, Robert Wick, Seth Simon, Elizabeth Martin, this is Nathan Millward, you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.
1: While us motorcyclists are no stranger to weight problems. I mean, I'm sure you've thought about it, you know, the benefits of losing a few pounds, maybe a kilogram or two. Think about it. Less weight means less energy to move around. Less weight means quicker reactions, even better braking for that matter. Now, hang on, before you start considering treadmills and stairmasters, I'm talking about your bike weight. Now, I guess most riders would say that one of the best ways to shed some weight from your bike is to get rid of that factory exhaust system and change it with an aftermarket one because the aftermarket ones are a fraction of the weight. And that's great, but there's another way to get rid of possibly even more weight than that. And that's getting rid of that lead-acid battery in your bike that weighs so much. Lead-acid technology has been around since like the mid-1800s, and it hasn't changed a whole bunch. It's still the same sort of basic thing. It's very heavy, and it's, it's got some drawbacks. I mean, they, it's been developed into a very reliable storage device for us for energy. But nowadays, there's better options. And the drawbacks with the lead-acid can be, number one, weight. Number two is it's filled with lead-acid, which means that in a lot of batteries, they'll have a vent on them where the lead-acid... Acid could actually vent out, especially if you drop your bike on its side, you get a little bit of acid dripping out the tube. Some are sealed and they've they've cured that, but the weight thing you can't get away from. And one of the other problems is if you leave a lead acid battery sit, as we know with our motorcycles, you've got to have a tender connected to them because they self-drain. They have uh, an internal loss that drains power from the battery, even though it's completely unused, just sitting there. So you have to keep a tender on it to keep it going. Now the way to get rid of that heavy lead acid battery is to replace it with one of the new lithium ion batteries. Lithium batteries are everywhere and there's different versions of lithium batteries, but the lithium ion is the most widely used in electronics that we have nowadays. It'd be in your cell phones, your computers, your tablets, all those sort of things. Well, now they make it for motorcycle batteries and the advantages include fast charging times, super lightweight. I mean, these things that, and that's probably the biggest gain is that they're a fraction of the weight, up to 80% less weight in some cases than the lead acid comparison. So you've got a, a tiny compact, and very dense power supply. And they can be mounted in any position. You can mount them upside down, sideways. I mean, really, it gives you a lot of options, especially if you're into customizing bikes. And best of all, they just bolt into your OEM place, like where, you're, where you took your lead-acid battery out. You can just put your lithium-ion battery in there. Now, some of them are made in full-size cases, so they'll actually fit in just like your battery, only at a fraction of the weight. Other ones are small, and they use spacers to space it up. But those spacers give you a lot of options. I mean, you could run two batteries if you wanted to. You could have a backup battery. Um, you could have a, a battery for boosting. There's, there's so many things you can do. You could put in a compartment in there to store some things in. But most importantly, it's the loss of weight. Right, It's it's losing some of that weight. Now, one of the downsides with lithium-ion batteries, I think, is temperature. I don't think they're as good in those extreme cold temperatures, but for motorcyclists, that sort of rules out most of us, the extreme cold. Now, for those that are really weight conscious and looking to shave a few pounds off the bike and always thinking of ways you can do this, if you're one of those people who, you know, cut the end of your toothbrush off to save a little bit of weight, well, this is definitely something you ought to look at. Because imagine if you replace both the factory exhaust and your lead-acid battery, you could be into some huge weight savings. There's a number of manufacturers out there offering lithium-ion batteries for motorcycles. But we decided to contact ShoreEye, where ShoreEye makes power sport batteries and in particular motorcycle batteries.
4: My name is Fook Lam. I'm from Shorai. I'm the sales and marketing director for the company. We're located in uh, Morgan Hill, California, and we make and sell uh, lithium power sports batteries.
1: Fook, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Great to have you on. Hey, right, Thanks, Jim. Can you tell us about Shorai, how Shorai got started, and why lithium batteries with the Shorai?
4: Yeah, so uh, our founder, he was in the RC business, and he has had experience with uh, lithium batteries, making things for, like, drones, you know, helicopters, planes, you know, some military contracts. And for a long time, he's always – he's been an avid rider, you know, motorcyclist from Southern California. And uh, it was just a natural, you know, synthesis. He was like – he saw a weakness, you know, in his lead-acid batteries in his bikes. And he had a simple solution. So that's how Shorai started. It started uh, when he was living in Japan – a lot of early on engineering happened there, but then he moved back to the States and opened up the company in uh, 2010, and uh, here we are now.
1: So a lithium battery for a motorcycle, um, let's talk about lithium itself. What is a lithium battery?
4: It's uh, like a lead-acid battery, but it uh, uses different components, which are uh, more efficient. They transfer energy better, and uh, they're lighter. So that's why we use that in uh, the products we make. It's uh, it's green too. So you know, lead is a toxic uh, material. We don't really want to put our hand like deal with that stuff. So uh, that's why we went with lithium.
1: Now the big thing with lithium batteries, I think the first thing that catches your eye or ear as a motorcyclist is weight. The difference between that heavy lead acid battery that comes with the bike and what you could possibly have by having a, a lithium ion battery. Can you talk about the differences there in weight and size?
4: Yeah, so for we'll start with uh the weight. So for what you need. So lithium batteries, uh lithium a lithium battery is much more uh, energy dense than a lead acid battery. So for example, you could use less lithium material to make the same amount of power as a lead acid battery. That's where you get the lightness and then the uh smaller footprint. You could use less material, so therefore the battery size is much
1: smaller. So when we're talking smaller, what kind of size difference are we talking, and lightweight, uh, what Uh,
4: kind of weight? You know, uh, we'll start with the weight. Weight anywhere, it's around up to 80% weight savings over a standard lead-acid battery. And size, it could be, you know, 20 to 30% smaller. It just depends. Like for us, we make OEM size cases. That drop into, uh, you know, just the OEM box, is no f- uh, foam shims needed. And those are, you know, the, the, the shells are oversized and there's like, you know, there's air space inside of them. But then we make really small, like the, the smallest, most compact ones. And those, uh, you need like foam shims when you put it in the battery box.
1: It might be four or five pounds difference then.
4: Oh, yeah. So for like dirt bikes, I'd say, you know, average two to three pounds uh, weight savings for a street bike. 6 to 8 pounds, and then for touring and cruiser bikes, maybe 10 to 20 pounds weight savings.
1: Wow, that is a huge amount of weight. That, that's a massive weight. Like, that's like um, an exhaust swap or something. I don't, I don't know what else you can do on a bike to get that sort of weight loss. Yeah, it, it,
4: yeah it, it, so if you were to like compare you know, like carbon fiber, titanium, you know, pricing, you know, those bolt-ons, the, uh, the value in switching to a lithium battery for weight savings is uh, immeasurable.
1: Okay, so you mentioned that there's that it's more energy-dense. So we've got this smaller size or, or lighter weight, more compact battery. Um, you've mentioned you, you've got the two different sizes. One is a, the basic drop-in, which makes sense if you're not worried so much about the space. You're just going to drop it, and you want to bolt it in the, and not be, yep. be fussing with it. But if you are, maybe have a custom bike or you want to have some extra storage, you want to use that area for storage in your battery, you can use that smaller version.
4: Absolutely. So we have a big... Uh... A big you know, following of uh, custom bike builders that use our batteries because, yeah, as you said, they're, it's much smaller. and You can relocate the batteries, so some people put it in you know, the tail section, the air box, under the seat, and since there's no liquid in them, you can mount them in any way imaginable, upside down, on its side. So there's many applications for uh, custom bike builds.
1: Yeah, those are the cafe racers we see. You, you can look right through the frame and it appears there's nothing there. And the first thing that pops in your head is what have they done with the battery?
4: Yeah, exactly, exactly.
1: Now, as far as price, they're definitely more expensive than lead-acid batteries.
4: Uh, the price, it, it, is, it does cost more. You know, it depends on the battery. Some some batteries, like OEM ones, they're, you know, 20% over like a stock replacement lead battery. Some maybe, like the larger format batteries, could be 50% more cost. But you got to remember... These uh, lithium batteries last much longer than lead acid batteries. So you get many more start cycles from a lithium battery before you see any change in performance versus a lead acid battery. So it's, you know, you may be, sometimes you may pay, you know, 50% more, maybe twice as much, but you get, you know, 50%, twice as much life out of the battery.
1: So as far as reliability, I mean, is it lithium? We we use it everywhere, don't we? We have laptops and cell phones. I mean, basically, everyone's using lithium-ion batteries right now. Are they reliable enough for somebody who's going to do, like, you know, a round-the-world trip sort of thing on their bike?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Many people do do around-the-world trips with uh, our batteries. Uh, You know, the Dakar race, which is a very intense race. But uh, it's... the the lithium battery technology has gone a long way. You know, in the early days, they, they, weren't, they were uh, just slapped together, shrink-wrapped, you know, and then that's your battery. Now, you know, like us, for example, we use a, a mil-spec case. We have uh, cell-balancing boards inside the batteries, and we've just gone through many revisions of the cell design for reliability and power. So now it's probably, like, one of the best times to make the switch to uh, lithium Battery. If if you're considering it, there are many early adopters, but and there's still people that sat out and waited, you know. But it's uh, now it's the best time. The technology and the quality of the batteries out there are very high right now.
1: Well, I guess when they first started to come out, there were problems with, uh, or at least concerns about. One was overheating should the battery short out because these these batteries can be, like you said, it's a lot of power packed in there. What what difference is that between that and a lead acid battery as far as overheating? Aren't we looking at the same sort of problems?
4: It's 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 similar problems. High heat is not good for any battery, but one of the um, things with, like, you know, you you brought up short-circuiting, so there's different chemistries of lithium batteries, such as uh, lithium polymer, lithium manganese, lithium cobalt. Our batteries are lithium iron, and those are the most stable, that's the most stable chemistry. So, for example, if you were to damage a lithium polymer battery, like, crush it, it would probably catch on fire and it would, you know, it would, it would just burn versus a lithium iron battery would heat up, but it wouldn't get hot enough to, uh, ignite. And we chose that chemistry on purpose for, you know, its safety properties and for what it's going to be used in, you know, motorcycles get beat up, you know, people crash it, and, you know, you don't want a risk under your seat, you know, something to catch fire. So
1: now do these have built-in fuses as well?
4: Uh they don't have fuses but they have uh, battery management systems. Ours do, you know, it, it keeps uh check on the cells. It keeps the cells balanced and uh and healthy and charged evenly. Some manufacturers don't because of the additional cost and uh it's not easy to implement properly but we're pretty good at that. We have a, a bunch of engineers and that's like their their job is to do that.
1: Now the battery management system—that's to equalize the cells because when you charge, them, cells don't charge evenly. They, they'll, you know, one may be yeah. faster, one may be slower. Exactly. With a lead acid battery, because they're all in the same dip, they sort of even themselves out. But but with these style batteries, they don't.
4: They they there's some you know they do equalize eventually, but not fast enough. But you know even lead acid batteries have cell imbalance. It's just it's the uh, lead acid batteries are more tolerant to that. So that even a lead-acid battery could, could benefit from a uh, BMS board system put into them. But, you know, for the cost, they they don't, you know, because, you know, lead-acid batteries are very, very uh, low priced and the boards would be like as much as the battery sometimes, in some cases.
1: So for charging the batteries, lithium-ion in particular, I guess the one thing to note is their ability to hold charge exceeds lead-acid batteries.
4: Yes. Yes, uh, our lithium batteries, they hold their voltage around one volt higher than a standard lead-acid battery, so uh, what that means is when you crank over your bike, your starter just spins a little faster, like 25% faster.
1: Okay and then and also for for discharge I mean you know with a lead acid battery you leave it sit on the shelf um I forget what the percentage is it loses every month but it loses a certain amount of of its charge every month just by sitting on the shelf and um, the lithium ion doesn't doesn't lose at the same rate does it
4: Oh yeah it's it, it's significantly lower probably over you know a year sitting on the shelf it it lose a couple percent of its voltage yeah lithium okay. batteries have a very high uh you know tolerance to sitting on the shelf Un, you know, unloaded, disconnected from the circuit, of course.
1: So many people have a tender on their bike when they're not using it for their lead-acid battery. Do you have to do that with a lithium-ion or would you just leave it?
4: Uh, it depends if your bike has a parasitic draw. So, on, I'd say, you know, like dirt bikes, like, you know, KTM, EXEs, uh, there's bikes with electric starters. Dirt bikes, they don't need to sit on a tender. I would say, charge it up, you know, ride it before you park it, and that should uh, be good enough. Like, some cases, such as bikes like Goldwings or bikes with uh, low jack alarms, I would say it's a good idea to keep it on a tender.
1: Is there still the fear with lithium-ion of, of breaking the battery, draining it down so low that it gets to the point where it can't be charged up again?
4: Hey, that, that's uh, a possibility. That's happened. So the best thing to do if you do discharge your battery is to catch it as soon as possible and then just top it off. It, it, you could damage the battery if it sits uh, at, you know, zero volts for too long.
1: So would that count like, you know, you're, I don't know, you're into some sort of problem and you're leaving your ignition on, you're messing around, you're cranking over to try and start it. If you drain the battery, would you have to be careful of draining it down too far? I mean, is there any sort of safety shutoff that it has so it doesn't, it doesn't actually ruin the battery?
4: Uh, there is there a cutoff, like an internal cutoff? Or yeah, like
1: a- you know, because we talked about the battery management system.
4: Yeah, so there, there, are, there, there are ways to do that. We haven't found a, a good way to do it because, uh, you know, the way most of it works is like when you start, you have a start event on your bike and your battery is sitting at, say, 13 volts. It's going to drop much lower than 13. It might drop to, like, 8 volts, 9 volts when you have the start attempt. And then your charging system is going to charge up the battery. But if so, if we we're to put a cutoff in there, you know, and we cut it off. It might cut off too early before your bike is able to start. We say that, you know, 11 volts, which would be good. And, and your bike probably won't start if the voltage dips. So there, there's some external uh, low voltage cutoffs, but we do, do not have one built into the battery.
1: So in reality, what are we talking about something, this is something you're going to have to think about, or are you just never going to have to worry about uh,
4: it? No, in general, if... if if you do discharge your battery, you, you just, I would just say, charge it up slowly. Really, the, the, when people get into problems, it's when they let the battery sit at zero volts for like a week, mm. like for a long period of time. But most people catch it pretty quickly.
1: That sort of goes for lead acid, too. Yeah, with lead acid, you would, you know, most times you, you, they say, hey, you can just charge
4: up a lead acid. But what you don't know is the lifespan of that lead acid battery is is cut down significantly. You know, you would think. A lead-acid battery, you get, you know, three to four years, but sometimes now the battery will only last a
1: year. Mm. When we talk about chargers for this, uh, putting a tender on it, you need a special charger. You can't use a a regular battery charger on a lithium-ion, can you?
4: No, of course not. You can use a regular charger. Just think about your charging system of of your bike. It doesn't know if it's a lead-acid battery or a lithium battery, right?
1: So you don't have to go buy a special charger for this thing if you want to have it. You can use the tender you've got on your old bike.
4: Yeah, you could use a, a like a battery tender. The main thing we say is uh, you can't use a charger that has a desulfation mode, which that could damage the uh, built-in uh, balancing board.
1: Because
4: mm. uh, de- you know desulfation, it, it's just like a high spike of voltage from the charger into the battery, and it's designed for lead acid batteries. And that that overload can damage the uh, BMS board. But in general, if you, you know your battery is somewhat healthy, you can just use a regular old battery tender. Plug it in. Charge it up at you know one and a half two amps, and you're good to go. The, the best case is we we recommend using our charger because it uh has a it charges through the five pin diagnostic port, and it charges each of the cells individually, and it's much more aggressive than our built-in uh, balancing board.
1: Okay, because that's when we were talking about the balancing cells. That's what the problem is. One cell starts to charge faster than the others, and whereas this is charging them individually. Exactly.
4: Yeah. Okay. You know, the batteries have a built in balancing board, but it's just not as robust as using an external charger.
1: So, what about water and abuse? How does the batteries handle that?
4: Uh, Just fine. Uh, In general, you know, they're waterproof. So, I would say, you know, if if there's any, the only place I would be wary about for like our batteries would be a the charging port there's a uh, with a diagnostic port i just mentioned i would probably just put some dielectric grease in there just to be safe but it's it's sealed but you know a little extra security is a, is a good thing
1: now if somebody's looking to change their battery how do they figure out what size battery because I, I know there's different ways to measure the battery capacity and sort of figuring out what compares to what can you talk about that
4: yeah, so in general, for the regular customer, you know, the quickest thing I would say was just to go to our website, you know, com, use the battery finder, put plug in your bike, and it kicks you out a recommendation. But if you say you don't have access or you're doing like a custom application, a good rule of thumb would be uh, 50% of the CCA rating of our battery, and that's you would have to check your starter current draw. So you would have to test uh, now how many amps your starter pulls when you try to start your bike. And that number would be it would have to be within 50% of the battery you purchase for your bike. So, for example, if uh, your starter current draw on your bike is 50 amps average, you would need a battery with at least 100 cold cranking amps for the 50% CCA rating.
1: So you're saying 50% more yeah
4: yeah fifty percent
1: more okay so when we're talking cold cranking amps as far as lead acid batteries, they've got a certain test that they do where they where they sort of draw it down for a certain period of time, but lithium ions don't work like that do they
4: uh they they do the similar test, but the uh the standard s a e test it's it's kind of skewed, it's like you know they do like burst testing, it's like for a split second you pull a hundred amps for like a, a second or two that's not a true start event you know what i mean no bike starts in like one
1: second right and that's what you have to be careful of when you're looking at a battery like this is you i mean you may find uh, maybe a deal like you know if you're shopping on ebay or something you may find a deal but not realizing that they're not measuring the cold cranking amps the same way and th- this is why i sort of want to shed light on this because some of them i think use three second crank and some of them use 10 second crank uh yeah. so you want to yeah. you want to know what you're looking at
4: yeah exactly
1: so the best thing to do, I guess, really the same as anything goes, I'm really seeing a lot of this stuff about counterfeiting things. You're better off to buy from a reputable manufacturer.
4: Of course, of course. Mm.
1: So as far as the cons of the lithium-ion, is there any reason or is there, is there any type of motorcyclist that you can imagine that might say, okay, that battery's not going to work for me?
4: Uh, I would say the ones i've we've seen here that you know I've gone into trouble using like lithium batteries are the uh the the custom chopper bikes that have like gigantic motors but tiny starters you know mm. and those are the ones that get into trouble and then, and those those bikes eat batteries you know they they're like oh, I replace a battery like once a month every couple months, and it's because uh they're just using too small of a starter on such a big motor and most of the time these guys that build like these these custom choppers, they're not, you know, true engineers. They're not designing starter gear ratios around, like, you know, the compression of the bike and how much it needs. They're just throwing in whatever looks good, you know. So those are the guys I would say to be, I, I don't think it, lithium batteries, are ours or anybody's, would really work well for a long period of time. It would look, it'd work fine if it was a show bike, you know. If no one rode the bike, it'd look cool. But if you had to ride it every day, it wouldn't last.
1: Because um, even for old bikes, for, for antique bikes, you guys sell a uh, 6-volt battery. I think you guys are the only ones that have a 6-volt battery, are you?
4: I, I think so. Maybe. Yeah, I think we are one of the only people that make a 6-volt battery. Hmm.
1: Now, what about cold starts? Now, obviously, n- most people don't ride their bikes in real cold weather, but sometimes when you're traveling somewhere, you get stuck in the mountains, etc. These batteries work a yeah. little differently, don't they?
4: Yeah, so in in the cold... It's uh, the batteries are, are uh, there's a lot of resistance in the battery, so it's going to seem like it's a dead battery when you go to start your bike. But there's a couple ways to get around that. So it's uh, either, you know, put a load on the battery, so turn on your headlight, your heat, uh, heated gear for a minute, and that small load will dissipate the resistance in the battery, and each attempt at starting will be stronger and stronger. So actually, the lithium batteries are much better than lead-acid batteries in the cold because with a lead-acid battery, when you go to start it, if it doesn't start, it just gets weaker and weaker. On the other end, with a lithium battery, each each start attempt will be stronger and stronger. So it's it's a little backwards, you know, from what we, we, we know, but it, it, that's how it is with uh lithium batteries
1: yeah it's interesting because the last thing you're thinking you want to do is actually turn on your headlight and wait before you start it when it's yeah, cold you'd, yeah yeah you'd no, don't think,
4: like, oh, use all the juice
1: yeah, yeah. Your, your first attempt is going to be your your best but in this case it's not which is really comforting actually especially in the cold because yeah. even the engine is better once you've tried to crank it over a few times it cranks over easier i mean anybody with a car in yep. a cold climate yep. finds that yep is there anything else we should know about lithium batteries
4: uh, that you should make the switch. Every, everyone's going to make the switch. It's, uh, it's just a matter of time. So.
1: Oh, really? So you're, you're thinking there'll be OEM stuff soon?
4: Oh, a- absolutely. Uh, ShowRite has been working with a couple of, the you know, big OEMs, you know, I can't name anybody, but we have specs from them and, uh, we, we're building stuff for the OEMs and we, we've already had OEM, uh, uh, eric uh, ebr motorcycles when they were still uh churning out bikes uh, they were using our stuff as a uh, oem battery so it was one of the first oems in the motorcycle
1: industry using a lithium battery Fuke, great to talk to you thanks very much
4: absolutely thanks jim i appreciate you uh giving me a call and uh hearing me out
1: Foo Clam is from Shore Eye, and you can find out more about Shore Eye batteries by visiting their website, com. And of course, that link will be in our show notes. The other day, I'm looking at my bike, thinking about weight distribution, you know, and changing things around and whatnot. And it occurred to me just how valuable the tank panniers are that I have had for many years before I started doing this from AeroStitch. They're called AeroStitch tank panniers. Now, these tank panniers, they come in two different sizes and a couple of different colors. I see they have them in yellow now. Mine are black. But they're roughly, the bags themselves, the the standard ones, are about 12 inches by 9 inches by 5 inches. Um, They say about 8.8 liters each. And the competition version is 12 by 7.5 by about 4.5 inches, and they say they're about 6.6 liters each. But my point is, they're very robust, they're very tough. I have dropped my bike countless times on them, and they still actually have the same shape as they did when I got them. They've got zippers at the top, they've got some straps on the sides to hang stuff to, which I often do, like my sandals when I'm riding in the summertime. Uh, just a great way to distribute weight on your motorcycle. So drop by their website, click on the bag section, and look for the Aero Stitch tank panniers. Hey, and anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. That's going to get you either 10% off your order, which is great, or it's going to get you free shipping if you're a repeat customer. I have Shirley Hardy-Ricks and Brian Ricks here to talk about the new book they have out called The Long Way to Vladivostok. Shirley, Brian, how do you say that in Russian?
2: Oh, I have absolutely no idea. My language skills in Russian are fairly limited. I can count to 10 and introduce my brother. (laughs) <laughs> um, who didn't travel with us to Russia? So it was pretty pointless being able to do that. But um, now, now you do that at, this, I,
1: at once. Like, is that how you introduce it? You count to ten and then. <laughs>
2: <introduce your runner. laughs> Counting to ten was actually very handy when buying petrol, or um, and I a, a friend of ours was very impressed when we went shopping in Novosibirsk, and I was able to order the right number of pieces of chicken we needed for dinner instead of just pointing and holding up fingers. I thought that was really good. <laughs>
0: Impressive stuff. And you, can, and you can order cold milk, surely? I can
2: order cold milk, that's true.
1: <laughs> well, you have two other books out. One's called Two for the Road. The other one's called Circle to Circle. This is the newest one, uh, The Long Way to Vladivostok. What is this book about?
0: Well, well basically, Jim, it's uh, about our third journey um, overseas. Uh, we shipped our bike to Greece, uh, rode up through Eastern Europe, across into Western Europe, up into Norway, the beautiful uh, coastline of Norway to Nordcap. Then um, meandered our way through into Russia, down into um, the stands, Kazakhstan, across uh, towards the Aral Sea and um, down into the Pamir region of Tajikistan, the borders of Afghanistan. And then uh, made our way back into Russia and across to Vladivostok and trying to do all that before the snow set in, um, which we made it with about four days to spare before um, getting ourselves uh, back to good old warm Australia.
1: How long did it take you
0: to do the entire trip? We were away for six months. Yeah, this was a short trip for us, just six months.
1: You said short trip. Shirley said six months was, uh, I, I believe in the last raw, she said six months was the longest trip she wants to do. That's
2: the longest one I want to do now. Our first trip was 12 months when we shipped the bike to England and rode home. And when we went and did the Americas and a bit of Europe and a bit of Africa, we were away for 16 months.
1: How long did it take you to prep for the trip? Uh, I'm sort of curious because a lot of people ask about this, about prep time. So six months, ride time, how much prep time in advance?
2: Well, um, with this trip, there wasn't a lot of discussion, I should say, Jim. Brian goes to lunch on a Friday with some friends, one of whom ships motorcycles around the world, and he came home from lunch and pointed out to me that he had booked the bike on a ship to Greece and that we would be leaving on uh, such and such a date in April and the bike would be going in February. And at that stage, it was probably not long before Christmas, so I didn't have that long, which was a bit of a problem organising things like the Russian visa, which is fairly complicated. But normally we do a little bit more preparation than that. And should I say, normally we do a little bit more discussion as well.
1: <laughs> well, I don't know if this says so much about Brian. Well, it does say something as well. But but it also says something about you, Shirley, who who gets the news and says, okay, well, let me get to work. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, I guess I, I, w- I wasn't that unhappy
0: about it. Uh, Jim, she works well the deadline, so I just gave her a deadline, simple as that, and a bottle of French champagne. But that worked wonders. <laughs>
1: You have a good story about meeting up with some bikers. Can you tell us that?
0: Yeah, the bikers in um, Russia are just so friendly. They are such great people. We're riding across the the veld of um, Siberia. Now, the Trans-Siberian Road, you you don't come across many towns or any towns really in in many places, and you have to ride off the road um, 10 or 20 kilometres to get to a town. It's cold, wet, miserable, And um, we're running low on fuel. And uh, we pulled into the town of Magotcha. And um, the GPS said that there was uh, somewhere to stay there, but we couldn't find it. They said was fuel and we couldn't find the fuel. When you're going through here,
1: when you're setting up your schedule, do you have a a set hotel or something you're going to? Or do you just sort of wing it and see when you get to a town? (laughs) Uh,
2: In that part of Siberia, we did tend to wing it. And a couple of times we stayed in truck stops on the highway which are like a petrol station with accommodation attached. Um, and uh, at one of those, they actually asked us how many hours we would like the room, <laughs> uh, which was <laughs> interesting concept, I have to say. Obviously, truckies in Russia only sleep for a couple of hours and then keep moving. Of course. But um, – <laughs> but uh, and when we went into Magotsha, we knew that there was accommodation there, but we um, hadn't booked ahead because we didn't quite know how far along the highway we'd get that day. So – it was getting cold and it was a very miserable afternoon. The weather mm. was, had turned pretty bad.
1: Is it pretty easy to find places though?
2: Um, the truck stops, even though yeah. they're fairly rudimentary, they are pretty much everywhere along the highway. And most towns uh, of a reasonable size have accommodation. Again, sometimes it can be fairly rudimentary. We never found out what the hotel in Magotcha looked like, even from the outside. We never <laughs> found it. Um, before we came across the um, the Magotcha Iron, Iron Angels. Angels. Or should I say the Magotcha Iron Angels came across us.
0: When you ride <laughs> into Magotcha, what does it look like? Oh, drab. Um, hardly anything's painted. It's uh, raining, drizzling rain. Um Yeah, very, very poor town, wasn't it, Cheryl?
2: And and run down. It looked very much like you imagine um, Russia during the Stalin years, lots of concrete buildings without any trim or, you know, apartment blocks without any balconies or anything like that. And um, we found a few shops but um, not what you would call a bustling high street or shopping strip, you know, just a few shops, shops dotted through. But plenty of people around, even though the weather was so miserable, and there was lots of cars on the road.
0: Oh, well, for them, it was summertime, so...
2: Yes, <laughs> everything's really, relative.
0: What's going
1: through your head when you pull into this town? What's your, What are you um, feeling?
2: Well, I was dreading the fact that we weren't going to be able to find a room, because the weather was so bad, it was just becoming really uncomfortable on the bike that was cold and wet. And um, I always feel a little anxious at times like that. I prefer to know that we've got a a – on a night like that, it's nice to know there's a warm bed and a hot shower at the end of the ride and we weren't so sure that that was going to happen when we went into Magotcha. And because we were so low on fuel, we pulled up to the side of the street and we were discussing whether we should persist in trying to find the hotel first or try and find the fuel. And at that point – a little beaten-up old larder, one of the old Eastern Europe cars from the 50s, pulled alongside of us. The window wound down and this big fug of smoke came out the window and this voice said, Clubhouse, follow. And Brian and I looked at each other and he shrugged. I went, okay, we don't have much choice. And we had lots of side streets and um yeah, uh, there was one street we went down that wasn't actually paved, and I thought, oh, my gosh, what are we letting ourselves in for?
0: So he was leading us through the back blocks of Magotcha, which is uh, very, very, very ordinary.
2: <laughs> and then he, he pulled up outside a, a I guess, how would I describe it? Shed. Yeah, a shed. <laughs> and like a garage, but um, it looked very much home-built, not anything that you would uh, see professionals doing, um, with a um, – after a fashion driveway leading up to the front of it and uh, the driver of the car got out and the passenger and they went and opened the doors of this shed and signaled for us to ride inside and there were half a dozen bikes inside and this was the clubhouse for the Magotcha Iron Angels Motorcycle Club.
1: (laughs) Now, when you get to that shed, you guys have your your comms on. We were just talking about that. What's the conversation?
0: (laughs) Um, are we doing the right thing? Is this safe? I'd heard of great um, camaraderie between the um, motorcyclists uh, in Siberia. So I thought, yeah, okay, well, let's see what these guys want and maybe they just want to have a drink, um, meet up with us because we're foreign, whatever it is. Um, that was about it really, wasn't it, Shirley?
2: Yeah, we had heard that the um, the bikers in Siberia were great and that the Magotcha um, – motorcyclists were particularly friendly. We'd heard that from other travellers. And when we rode in, um, got off the bike and looked around and I thought, what is this place? It's like it is just a garage. Maybe they're just taking us to the garage to leave the bike. And the president of the Magotra Angels, Alexi, did not speak English really. He maybe had a few words. But he was with a motorcyclist from Vladivostok and um, he could, Sasha could speak very good English and he explained to us that they'd seen us and that they, their role in life was to look after motorcyclists and now we were safe with them and uh, would we like to go out and have something to eat. And I said, look, first I really need to use the toilet and um, Sasha said, oh, I'm sorry, we don't have a toilet. And I thought, oh, Okay. Right, all right. But he said, but where do we go for something to eat, there's a toilet there. So we got into the larder and were taken into the town of Magotcha to a supermarket that had a cafe attached to the side of it and a toilet. <laughs> and they bought us dinner, which was a soup mm. with dumplings that when you bit into them, all the fat ran out of them and ran down your hand. They're a Siberian delicacy. I <laughs> guess you need a lot of fat in your diet when your winter temperature gets to minus yeah, 50. So. Yeah.
0: But they wouldn't let us pay, Jim. Yeah. They, they refused any uh, offer of money to pay for our food. So Shirley disappeared into the supermarket and bought some... Um, Beer, oh uh, no, vodka. I think you bought, I bought didn't some you? vodka. So you I,
2: would... I bought some snacks because I thought clearly, if we're going back to that clubhouse to drink, they won't be putting on cheese and bikkies. They <laughs> weren't cheese and bicky kind of people. Uh, so I bought snacks and um, vodka, and uh, being a very smart girl, I also bought some soft drinks, some Coke and water and things because I thought a man can't live on vodka alone. So we had this delightfully. Um, rustic meal, I guess, before we (laughs) went back to the even more rustic headquarters of the Magotcha Iron Angels, which not only didn't have a toilet, it didn't have running water of any kind. And uh, above this garage, there was a a wooden ladder that went up to the the mezzanine floor, which was the accommodation section. And the accommodation section had uh, two or three couches, a coffee table that was covered in um, ashtrays with cigarette butts and half drunk drinks. It's, and
0: a ty- <laughs> it's a typical bikers' hangout, you know.
2: <laughs> it was typical boys' Pretty. bike okay? hangout. <laughs> um, it was a very, very unusual experience. I've got to say.
0: Yeah, but but they explained why they do this, uh, Jim. Um, one of their number, a young man, had uh, been camping and uh, in the Siberian forest. Now it's a very, very poor country out there. And this young fellow had two little kids at home and he he just didn't make it home. And um, so they reported to the local police that their their friend had gone missing, nothing happened. They couldn't find him, the police did nothing, they couldn't find him. So um, uh, the Magotcha Iron Angels actually got a lot of motorcyclists together and did a line search of the area where they thought he might might have camped. And um, they found his burnt out body and, um, as a result of that, and this is going through Russian translation to English, I think, um, through Sasha, they um, they found the person who was wearing their mate's clothes. And um, uh, they, they, it was just a terrible, terrible situation. So all the bikers in Siberia got together and they decided that it just wasn't safe for people to be camping out there. Sure, you could get away with it if you're lucky, but... Um, It is quite a a dangerous part of the world. So they bought blocks of land at strategic uh, towns and set up these sheds. And if they see a biker travelling on the road, they will um, stop, um, invite them to their clubhouse, and you can stay there as long as you need to uh, before you move on and you'll get all the assistance that you need. So it's just a wonderful, wonderful setup. And they actually set up a memorial on the side of the road to the young young uh, man that was murdered. And each year they have a rally at that site. So it's very, very deep in their hearts that um, protecting each other is very important. And when Alexi was telling us his story, he had tears streaming down his face. And uh, I made sure his story and the story of the Magotra Iron Angels made it back to Australia.
1: So the the deal with the people, I mean, this couldn't be just a one off. I mean, otherwise, when they hand the guy over to authorities, then it's handled, it's done, everything's safe again. There's obviously an ongoing threat.
2: That's what they say. That we had heard mm. that it was dangerous to camp in Siberia, and um, for because of the danger of um, humans and also bears. Mm. Remember, it is it um, is bear country. Um, you being a Canadian, you would understand bear country. But um, so we had heard that it was dangerous and we always go with local advice. If the locals say don't do it, there's a reason that they say it. They're not just doing it to be difficult. So we had no intention of camping in Siberia unless we had no other option, no other option at all, and I don't quite know how desperate we would have been that night had uh, Alexi and Sasha not found us. We may have been pitching the tent somewhere in the rain, but – it didn't, come, it didn't come to fruition because we were literally saved by the Magotcha Iron Angels.
0: And, and Jim, you've got to remember, these people are so poor, they don't have a lot. And uh, I made sure that, uh, that they refused to take money off me. So I made sure I left enough money for them uh, to cover our expenses and a little bit more um, just because they're such good guys.
1: What's the deal with the camaraderie? Why, why do bikers stick together so much in, in Siberia?
2: look, I think bikers stick together pretty much everywhere in the world. It's it's an amazing community that you have that common love of riding and and exploring the world on two wheels. And certainly in Siberia, well, all throughout Russia, yeah, we came across, everywhere. we went to a bikers bar in Banal. And um, that also, that we met bikers there from two or three cities in Russia, and they were incredibly friendly and didn't want us to pay for our lunch. And and there was like ten of us, but they, oh, no, no, we'll do it, we'll do it. But in the end, you know, you just sit around and talk through interpreters and just share tales of travel and and the joy of motorcycling. So I think it's something and, that bikers share everywhere.
0: Yeah, I think so. But uh, over there, uh, you know, the elements really do, are against you. So they, um, uh, if you you are travelling the other way and a motorcycle is coming towards you, they will always slow down and stop and try and tell you what the road conditions or what's ahead of you or what's – and you're expected to do the same from the, the direction you've come. Um, similar to what we used to do probably 50 years ago, but uh, nowadays um, we sort of just wave at each other um, and some even don't – and don't even bother to do that. But uh, to me, um, the camaraderie of the, the Russian bikers is uh, really something else.
1: How many riders are you passing? Is it a fairly regular thing or is it just uh, every you know couple of days? Mm-hmm. No,
2: no it, it's not a very regular thing. That was one thing that surprised us. We didn't come across many bikers on the road. Mm. We didn't come across many international travelers either. We kept bumping into the same half a dozen in over three or four different yeah. countries. You'd bump into them again. But we didn't see that many travelers in that part of the world other than Tajikistan, we did meet quite oh, a few. Well, there was a few then.
0: Italians. that We were in the Pamir region, which is the, the border with Afghanistan in the north. And um, there was a, a guy coming the other way, a, a couple of guys on BMWs. and So we pulled up. They were from Italy. And he saw my number plate on the back of the bike and he said, oh, you're from Australia. Um, are you from Melbourne? I said, well, yes, I am from Melbourne. He said, do you know Alex Simpson? And I said, well, yes, as a matter of fact, I do.
2: <laughs> he knew one Australian and we knew him. <laughs> so yeah. this
0: experience you had with, with the
1: Magotcha Iron Angels, did that change the way you pictured the area that you were riding through to change your your sort of your views on things?
2: I always knew it was very desolate. I didn't realize how dangerous it was. Um, and it was really very emotional when we rode out of Magotcha the next morning Sasha came with us and he took us to the memorial for the young biker who'd been murdered. And it's a big um, marble, like a marble grave with a headstone and everything, and travellers have put their stickers on it. You know how a lot of travellers give give out a sticker Mm. of something to do with their ride? And it was becoming covered in stickers from riders from all over the world who'd made the journey to pay their respects to this young man. So that was very, very emotional. So it did make me feel um, probably more apprehensive. I was glad to get to the, a big town the next night and stay in a, in a hotel rather than bumbling our way through again. Yeah,
0: whereas, whereas for me, Jim, I felt that um, it just shows you the camaraderie of motorcyclists and how good they are to each other.
1: You guys mentioned before when you told me about this, about the forest people, and that's really who was involved, I guess, with this murder.
0: Yeah, well, um, as I said, they're very, very poor, and apparently this young man had camped in the middle of nowhere, just over the hill, out of the side of the, the road and all the rest of it. And, um, of course, they, they'll because they're so poor, um, these people come down and um, will, will steal and rob and things like that. And... Uh,
2: We believe that the man who murdered this young man, from what we've been told in translation, came down and wanted him to drink with him. And this fellow didn't drink. And because of that, um, I guess the guy thought it was a slight on his hospitality that he attacked him and murdered him. But when you ride through that area, it was not an uncommon sight to see a very old lady sitting on a box on the side of the road with a bucket of mushrooms that she'd foraged in the forest and was selling to truck drivers. And truck drivers would stop at the roadside stops and and buy produce off these old ladies. And when you think how bleak the weather is, even in the time of year we were there, it's a really hard way to make a living. And these people were very, very old. So it's it's a hard life that they lead there.
1: The book is The Long Way to Vladivostok, A Journey Through Scandinavia and the Silk Road to Siberia. Brian, Shirley, great to talk.
2: Thanks, Jim.
0: Thanks, Jim. Much appreciated.
1: Now, if you want to get this book or any of the books they've written, visit their website, www.ozziesoverland.com.au. Well, Tour USA is a motorcycle rental company near Seattle, Washington, and they're connected with PSSOR, which you know of from Brett Tax from here from our Rider Skills segments. They do rentals, so you can rent adventure motorcycles from them, um, or you can rent street bikes from them. One thing I really like about this is that because they're connected with PSSOR, you can arrange a lesson before you go on a ride. To me, it's just it's a great way to plan a vacation. So think about the next time you're going to head to the West Coast, maybe Canada, the U.S. You fly into Seattle, you grab a bike from them, you either do a day lesson or maybe one of their multi-day lessons, and then go off on an adventure. Their bike rentals include um, F650GSs, F800GSs, R1200GSs, R1200RTs, the Kawasaki KLR650. They fifty. They've even got a lowered version of the KLR650 um, with a, well, at least a lower seat height and um, a a Triumph Tiger XC. So, I mean, you've got a lot of bikes to choose from. Now, you want to book early to make sure that you you get your rental set up. But I just love the idea of being able to get on a plane, fly out there with your helmet and your jacket and go rent a bike that's set up for adventure. TourUSA.us. It should be easy to remember, the .us. TourUSA.us. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. When you hit the dirt on your adventure bike, it's all loaded up, you have all your weight on it and everything, and you stand up, it's the pegs that really make the connection between you and the bike. I mean, your hands are holding the bars, but it's the pegs that are doing the control. And if you have stock foot pegs, it's quite a small area. I mean, every stock foot peg is very tiny. Aftermarket foot pegs like the IMS products foot pegs give you additional leverage so you have a better platform to stand on and you have more leverage. Now what's important with the IMS foot pegs in particular is that they're designed in such a way that they don't change the distance between the front of the foot peg and your shift lever or your brake lever. If you just make a, a foot peg wider all around what you do is you change that distance and then you increase the angle you have to tilt your boot to shift your shift lever or step on your brake. It's important to design those correctly. IMS products are designed by racers. I mean, they really put them through the tests before they actually make it to market. They have a complete set of foot pegs that are designed specifically for adventure riders. IMS foot pegs all come with a lifetime warranty. They're made in the USA. Visit them at imsproducts.com. And of course, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Earlier this year, Garmin released two new GPS navigators in their Zumo line. One is the 395LM, and the other one is the 595LM. The 395 being the lower-end model, 595 being the higher-end model, of course. Now, they're very close in design from what I understand. I've tried the 395LM. Now, the Zumo line is made specifically for motorcycles. They're waterproof. They're glove-friendly screens. They're designed to handle, you know, the environment of motorcycling like wind and rain and harsh weather, UV rays, all that sort of stuff. They come with lifetime maps, and they're pre-programmed with points of interest for us motorcyclists. So it's um, it's set up just for motorcyclists. Now, the uh, although we haven't tried it, the Zumo line, both of them, apparently, are compatible with the Garmin's Verb Action cameras, as well as a tire pressure monitoring system. Now, the action camera, I'm not worried about, but I like the idea of the tire pressure monitoring system. That's that's a very handy thing. Now, we've talked about GPS in the past, and often what comes up, especially nowadays, people will say, well, why will I bother getting a GPS? And I've said this myself, because I've looked at what I can get on a smartphone. You can get your smartphone, you can download an app, and you can download maps for it. And basically, you have your navigator right there. It uses all the electronics of the smartphone, which is, you know, a high-quality processor in there, like basically a computer in your hand, a beautiful touch screen, uh, although not glove-friendly, but a beautiful touch screen, and all, you know, sort of all the things that go along with the smartphone. Smartphone, And until I tried this 395, I was thinking, okay, well, my next one was definitely going to be just using my phone. Well, this new Zumo line of GPS navigators may well have some features that you'll find that are worth the investment. Garmin has packed a lot of features into this unit. And like any GPS or navigation device of any sort, including a compass for that matter, you need to learn how to use it before you head out for a ride. And I'll give you an example, okay? One of the first things that I want to talk about on this is it has, and I think it's a great feature, it has adventurous routing on it. So when you go to choose your route, you can choose the fastest, most direct, um, and adventurous routing, which is really neat. So this adventurous routing you go into, and you can actually have a, I think there's there's uh, several settings here. One is preferring bends. Another one is preferring hills. Another one is avoiding major motorways. And they're sliders that you can slide back and forth. So you can adjust this thing to get a, a different adventure out of your route. And it really makes a difference. But the problem is, if you don't play with this in advance and you don't figure out what's going on at first, you might, you know, say, okay, take me here. And next thing you know, you're driving off the main highway and you're thinking, where am I going? Which is exactly what happened to me. I, I get on the highway and go along the highway tell me to get off. and thinking, well, this isn't the exit that I thought I would get off on. I'm on some side road. Then I'm going back and I'm veering back to the highway. I'm thinking, what is going on? Well, that's what it is. It's the adventurous routing. So it's important that you learn to use these things before you actually start riding with them. But I think the adventurous routing is a great feature. There's a, another feature on here. Well, it has apps on it. So on the screen, when you when you go to the main screen, there's a, a little link on here. You can click on it for apps. The apps have things like Trip Planner, um, Share Your Route, Your Tracks, it has a media player that you can connect with your phone, which I've played with a, a little bit, but um, I didn't find a lot of use for that. It has a compass screen, which gives you a compass that you can see very easily, as well as a whole bunch of windows there that you can change you know, with your overall distance, your moving time, your sunrise, your time, your bearing distance, all that sort of stuff um, that you can customize to your own, uh, your own use. One of the other apps that I really like on it is the Round Trip app. And when you click on this Round Trip app, it it comes up with a prompt and says your start location. So you can click on your start location. And okay, you say, it'll give you either where I am now or categories or an address or favorites. You can go through your history. There's a bunch of different things you can choose from. If you just go to where I am now, that's the start, and you say select, then it says trip attributes. So you click on that, and you can either choose a distance, choose a duration, or choose a destination. Now, this is just a random, you want to go for a ride and you're looking to make an adventure for the afternoon, this is what you can do. So if I choose a distance, for instance, then it comes up with a number pad and I can type in 30, in my case, it's kilometers, and it calculates a route to take me 30 kilometers from where I am and bring me back to where I am. It's a really neat setup if you're just looking to cruise around, especially if you're in an area that you don't know and you, you you want that round route. One of the things that I I really liked about this was the connectivity with the headset. So when you're on the motorcycle and you're looking to get direction somewhere, in my mind, I don't want to be looking down at the screen. There's a couple of reasons for that. One, when I'm in traffic, I'm not used to cities. And when I'm in traffic, I want to be able to keep an eye on the traffic. I don't want to be messing around, trying to look down and focus on a screen that's in front of me. The other thing is, although these screens are meant to view in sunlight, you know, with any screen, you get it at the right angle, you can't see anything. And there's been times I've been riding with this, and the sun is just right. I cannot see the screen at all. There's zero chance of me seeing the screen because of the way the sun's reflecting on it. And that's a given with any screen you have on your motorcycle. So to get around that, that's where you hook it up through Bluetooth with your headset. And it gives you, you know, the walkthrough, just like it does in a vehicle, where, you know, coming up here, you're going to turn right and make a left, etc., And that, to me, that connectivity is an important feature with it. It's got other things like connectivity, as I mentioned, with the camera. It also has it with the phone. One of the other things I really like about it are the alerts that are on it. And again, this is a thing that you want to figure out before you go. Understand how they work. The alerts are for animals. They're for curves and speed limit changes. Those are the three that I really like. Now, you think you might not want alerts for this sort of thing, and and it's all personal, but the great thing is you can turn them off or adjust them if you don't want to have them, if you want to have them make a sound or you just want them to pop up on the screen, but animal crossings, uh, this thing actually gives you a beep and and an indicator on the screen that there's animal crossings coming up, but... The one that I like, but although I, I, I would like a slight modification to it, is the speed setting. So as you ride along, it warns you that you're about to come into a place where the speed changes. And that's really handy. You know, it, it, it just gives you that audible cue. When I hear that little dinger go off, I know, okay, I'm speeding and I've got to back off a bit. The only thing I'd like to see on this, instead of it going off exactly at the speed, I would love to have an adjuster on it so I could turn it up and say, don't give me an indication until I'm going 10 over, or maybe give me two indications. Maybe give me an indication, a certain kind of beep when I'm speeding, or maybe even just an indicator on the screen, and then maybe a, a beep, like the actual warning beep when I'm, okay, you're 10 over, you're 15 over, user settings. so you can adjust it to, uh, to what you feel you can sort of get away with in the area. I mean... There's some places you do the speed limit. I mean, people are going to be running you over because, the, you know, the flow of traffic is actually going 20 over. So to me, that feature would be nice if it was changed or modified slightly so you could actually adjust that that indicator. But even still, the way it is now, at least it makes me aware. So I hear that beep go off and it changes the speed um, representation on the screen to red. So you can see, okay, I'm speeding. In. And I found it really makes me aware. That's a, a very handy feature. It also has a helmet guide on it Which, um, for the United States anyway, it tells you what states, and apparently it prompts you when you cross the the state line. I haven't tried that, but when you cross the state line, it'll prompt you that, um, you know, hey, you need to put your helmet on or or you can ride without a helmet. Another app is called Last Spot, which shows you where you parked. So if you're one of those people who, um, you know, you park in somewhere, especially at a mall or something you don't know, you go inside, you wander around, not that it's happened to me, and you come out and you can't find where your bike is, well, you can simply have your GPS in your hand, press the little park button on it, and it'll give you coordinates to the last spot that you parked. I think that's a, a bit of a handy feature as well. Um, it's got a lot more on it. There, there's quite a bit of connectivity to it. I like the way it comes with the, the two different mounts. It comes with a suction cup mount for the vehicle and a power cord for the vehicle. And then on the bike, it has RAM mounts that mounts to your handlebar and then a, um, a proprietary cradle from Garmin that you actually put the unit in that clips into the nice thing about this cradle is that it's got just a little thumb snap on it that is really easy to undo to pop the GPS off. And that's really important because the GPS that I used before this one, is a, it's a Garmin as well, but it's a hiking GPS. And to get out of the cradle is quite a job. And you sort of have to bend the, the, the mount for it, the RAM mount and everything to get it out. This one's really sweet. It just unclips. So you just press this button and you pull it off. So you stick it in your pocket rather than leaving it on your bike and chancing somebody stealing it uh, while you're inside somewhere. I think that's the only the downside to see if anything that we bolt onto our vehicles, always having to worry about that thing of when you park it somewhere, you know, having to take it out. But the other nice thing about this cradle is, it has. It comes with another power cord that's separate from the one that goes inside your vehicle and plugs into your cigarette lighter. This power cord, you wire it right in. And as soon as you clip this on to that proprietary mount, it makes the connection and starts charging the unit or powering the unit from that power cord. That is a very handy feature. There's no messing around, plugging in a mini USB every time you hook it and unhook it, which again is another problem i have with my hiking gps is not only do i have to wrestle it out of the cradle i have to plug in this tiny usb plug into it and unplug it each time so that's a pain in the butt this just unclips you certainly don't want to leave this like forget this on your bike though i'm telling you i don't think it'd be there very long because anyone who who knows this type of thing can see that all they have to do is press a button and they can walk away with your unit so that's something to be wary of I find the unit really handy. I, I really like it. I like using it with um, my uh, my Bluetooth headset so that um, I get those step-by-step instructions. I can route my music through here, but mainly what I've been using it for is the GPS itself. The maps are quite good. Um, I would like to see it a, a little easier to get some Uh, topographical maps in the background. And the only thing I found with the screen is that sometimes, I don't know if it's me or what, but sometimes when when I've tapped it before with my gloves on, I've had trouble getting it to tap on exactly what I want. So uh, that's been a little bit frustrating for me every now and then, but again, it could be me. The keyboard um, is adjustable. I think it comes set up with a uh, a sort of a two-screen keyboard, so you have to go back and forth, but there's a setting in here. You can change it to bring the keyboard all on one screen, It's easier to type this way, but um, it can be a little cumbersome because the keys are very, very tiny at that point. So you've you've got to hit it with the end of your finger to type in. Uh, I like the fact that it has a a trip meter. It has a a fuel uh, trip meter on this. So what you do is you put in your range... And it sets up to automatically warn you that, hey, you know, you are you could be getting low on fuel and these are the stations that are nearby to get fuel at. That's a really handy feature for anyone who doesn't have a gauge on your gas tank for your motorcycle. That's very handy. It's got a, another app on it just to find gas stations. That one I find very handy as well. You're out somewhere, you find yourself getting low on fuel, all it takes is hitting just one button and you've got your list of gas stations that you can go to. It'll give you the routing to it, again, talking you through it through your headset. It seems like it's got a lot of additional things over and above just a standard GPS. Like I was saying, you could use your phone for the GPS, but this is a completely different setup. And there is something to be said for a waterproof, weatherproof unit that you can actually have on your handlebars and you can look up. You don't have to worry about it's your phone. If it starts to rain, you've got to pull over and put the thing away. So, wrapping things up with sort of my impressions of the 395, it seems to me that it's, it sort of filled a gap that I think was there. It sort of um, it gave me at least a reason to think about buying a proprietary GPS and not just using my phone as an app. And since we're talking about Garmin, we decided to go to Garmin itself and get somebody on from the company.
3: My name is Cesar Palacios. I work for Garmin International. I grew up in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, I've been working with the uh, media relations team for the past two years.
1: Palacios? Is that what you said? You said it so fast, you made it sound so easy, because when I look at yeah. your last name, you know, <laughs> it sort of sends me for a loop.
3: Right, yeah, Palacios. Yeah, it sounds, you know, think of palace, Caesar's Palace, and then you you'll never... <laughs> You'll never forget it.
1: <laughs> so looking at the, the Zumo line, well, well, first of all, let's, let's say, you know, talk a little bit about Garmin. Garmin's well known for handheld GPSs. It's almost the de facto GPS. It's the one you see most people with. Can you tell us a little bit about what Garmin has for lineup?
3: Uh, sure. Uh, basically, the best thing about the company in this case is that they've been doing it for so long that it's a well-oiled machine when it comes to producing products and getting information out, especially with devices. Now what we're looking at is uh, driver awareness. That's the biggest thing that we're we're starting to see in our devices, uh, specifically for collision warnings, lane departure warnings, drive assist features that we're starting to, to add to our products. And that obviously comes from years of experience of, of using GPS units. Uh, Having the market actually mature and be able to see these changes with the company has been a really great thing.
1: So it seems like the standard GPS, the way that it was 10 years ago where you, uh, maybe not 10 years ago because they've, they've advanced so much, but let's say, you know, 10 years ago, you just had your GPS and that's what it was. It was a GPS. It showed, if you were lucky, it showed you a map in the background and, uh, and would give you your coordinates, et cetera, but very GPS focused. But now what you're saying is that it's going off like that's sort of the, the base of the unit. And now there's all these extra things, all this connectivity that goes with it.
3: Right. That's that's one of the things that that Garmin uh, is is trying to bring in is that connectivity with drivers and and making sure they're aware as they're driving, being able to stay connected. And, and, you know, through smartphone notifications, uh, music, just basically trying to bring everything together into one cohesive unit. Uh, it's one of the main things that we work on as, as a company in that case.
1: Because we've had this conversation on the show before about uh, GPSs and why should you even buy them now? Because you can get a smartphone, you can get an app for it, and it'll be your GPS, basically. It'll, it'll show you a map and it'll tell you where you are. It'll give you those basics. Right. But so, th- I mean, that's obviously why you guys are looking at, at different things. But how do you do that? I mean, you talked about driver awareness. What sort of things are you doing to make a driver aware? How do you work that through a GPS?
3: Well, yeah, that's that's one of the, the main things that, that I always try to talk to people about when they they always mention, well, you know, I can use my cell phone, I can use all these sort of tools. But there's also a downside to that because you don't have a specific dedicated navigator that you can completely forget about and basically focus on the drive, which is one of the main things that we go with. And with driver awareness features, for example, you could be you know, on the road and you'll get a basically an alert, uh, you know, there's a sharp curve or if there is any, you know, animal warnings, animal crossings. So you'll get those those sort of smart notifications through on the GPS itself, which can, you know, save you time, save you, you know, grief uh, when you're on the road in those particular cases.
1: And certainly when you're motorcycle riding, I, I think one of the great things that I learned through trying the, the Zumo is that the feedback that you get through your headset, and you have to have a headset to hook up to this mm-hmm. to uh, to make the connectivity work, but that feedback you get through the headset is really valuable. Like you said, you, you mentioned the curves coming up. So you even get things like speed changes, which is really right. handy, and I'm amazed at how accurate it is. I, I don't know how you guys are doing that mapping, but at least for the areas that I've tried, it's incredible. I mean, we're talking just about at the post (laughs) you know when you're going from one speed limit change to another this this stuff is important to riders and that's what you're talking about isn't it
3: right absolutely speed changes uh as well sometimes you get so caught up in what you're doing what you you know so so many things can come up when you're driving that it's just nice to have that uh those features automatically pop up in your in your device and and be able to just worry about the driver like like you said speed changes you also you have state helmet laws as well uh, speed cameras, all these sort of things can come up while you're uh, in the middle of a drive. And Sometimes your entire focus needs to be on the road. So it's nice to have these features included in that case.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the state helmet laws because I thought that was really impressive when I saw that app on the GPS. You click on it and you can find out where you are le- legally obligated to wear your helmet and where you aren't. I mean, that's a really handy feature.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And then that's where we're we're, we're striving to... Add and to give to our, our our customer bases specifically for motorcycle riders, uh, that you know don't have the same amount of protection that you would get from a car. Uh, so it's it's really helpful for them to be able to get all these all these alerts and features, especially on the road. You know uh, things can get out of hand quickly, so it's nice to be able to rely on on a unit that can give you all that information, which is why. It's, uh, it's a phone. Can't, when you're in a motorcycle, using a phone is not, it won't be the best tool that you could use. And instead of having a dedicated navigator that's rugged, that's ready to, to help out basically is a, almost like a companion while you're riding. It's, you, you really can't beat that, that, that fact, that factor.
1: You know, I've had conversations with different people about their use of GPS, and some people say, oh, you know, I have no use for listening to somebody tell me directions, et cetera. I can just glimpse down at it. But one thing I've noticed is that when it, when I'm in a situation like, if, for instance, when I'm in traffic of a city, maybe if you're living in a city, you're more used to it. But when I get into an area like that, I really like those audio cues because I don't want to have to look down and try and decipher or maybe worry about this, the sun shining on it or or something else. Right. I want to be able to concentrate on the traffic, keep my head up and, and just ride.
3: Right. Especially uh, in areas that you're not very familiar with uh, and you're Trying to find a way, uh, you know, trying to find a specific location or an address or, or even if you know where you're going, it's just nice just to have that security blanket that, that's going to uh, get you where, where you need to go as safely as, as, as potentially as safely as possible uh, with, with our units.
1: A handy feature with the Zoom all I found was the the speed indicator that we talked about. And it, it dings as you uh, are at the maximum speed limit. Now, the, the only thing with that I would like to do is I would love to have a setting on that where I could add 10 kilometers to it and say, don't give me a warning <laughs> until I'm 10 kilometers <laughs> over. Because staying by, the, I mean, I admittedly, I think I'm staying much closer to the speed limit riding with this. But right. I would like to sort of just push it that 10 over a bit. Because sometimes you get yeah. the traffic behind you, you know, there's, they're sort of pushing you saying, hey, buddy. We want to go faster.
3: (laughs) Yeah. It's a, give you that leeway, you know, to, to give me a couple, a couple more miles or a couple more, you know, to to, to kind of bend the rules a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's super precise when it comes to uh, providing the speed limits and you'll get that every single time.
1: Is there any plans to make it so that you've got some sort of dial on there that you can change the settings?
3: No, uh, you know, I, I'll keep that in the in the in the down low for the time being. Now, for the time being, there's there's nothing like that. Uh, okay. But it's saving you a speed ticket. That's the way I, I tell uh, customers and people that that I talk to.
1: Well, it's awareness. It also changes the, the speed indicator to red. So if you glimpse down, you, you see it red, but just letting it go off. And what I've sort of learned to do is I hear it go off and I go, OK, I know I'm in this <laughs> zone and I'm just a little bit more aware, you know, and I, I, don't, I don't know if it's actually saved me a ticket, but it certainly makes me more aware of the speed. Like I said, the changes as you go through. So as far as routing goes, you can choose from fastest, shortest distance and also adventurous routing. Can you talk us through the adventurous routing setting and what that is all about?
3: yeah the the adventure, the adventurous routing uh it's basically it's it's elevating the ride by it just finds routes with curves, hills, and it limits uh all those major highways that basically are that can get kind of tedious after a while, they're unchanging, so it's kind of wearisome to see that all the time. so by having the adventurous routing, we're given uh, motorcyclists an option too. To, to basically do what they do best is to get out on the, the open road twisty windy roads and be able to see hills and just kind of capture that whole um, basically enhance the adventure of, of, of the ride in those cases
1: and it's adjustable you you give us a choice of figuring if we want more hills or more curves
3: correct and you can actually have preferred curves you can have you know like you said preferred hills you can avoid major highways which is the the, you know, the main thing, and you can adjust the level of that. You you'll actually have three bars that you can modify accordingly.
1: They're designed for motorcycles, as we're saying, the, the Zumo line. Um, when, you're, you're, when you're designing a unit like this, are you designing it strictly for connectivity with Bluetooth headsets, or is it also meant to be used on its own?
3: Uh, it's also meant to to be used on its own. Uh, I've We've had opportunities where we're Customers actually use the Zumo products in their cars, uh, not necessarily in a motorcycle. So we wanted to uh, give customers that that, even though it's meant for motorcyclists, we wanted to give uh, customers that that option of being able to choose and pick between the models. Some people just love the way it looks, the rugged design. If it falls, they know nothing's going to happen to it. You know, it's gonna it's gonna take take the hits. So they just use it for cars sometimes, which is totally fine by us. Uh, but definitely, it's de- definitely meant for, for the motorcycle, motorcyclist, Mark. Uh,
1: yeah, it really comes with a setup that that is uh, easy to install with cars because it comes with a little suction cup clip. I, I put it in ours as well um, right. to try it that way. And it's, it's a good way to play with it, to get the feel for it before you're on the bike. Cause I really think with this sort of thing, you need to know how to operate it before you get on your motorcycle.
3: Right. Absolutely. It's, it's, I would say it's uh, the best thing you can do is, like you said, just before you even install it, just just get to know the unit practice. It, you know, it's it's even though it's easy to use, there are a lot of things in it that are that that are definitely be beneficial for motorcyclists. But in order to get there, there's a lot, like, for example, you have hands free calling, being able to set up, you know, the smart notifications. Uh, so all these sort of uh, options are there. Um, it's easy to use. You can grab it, take it, use it without having to learn a lot about it. But if you take the proper time to, to, uh, go through that learning curve, I think it will be extremely beneficial, uh, in the end of things. Cause there's a lot of things, for example, they have compatible devices that go with it. So you have tire pressure monitoring systems. Uh, you have our verb action cameras that you can sync to the device. So there's all these different tools you can use with it as well. Uh, it, which is part of that learning curve that, that, we're, that we're talking about in that case.
1: Is there anything else about the Zumo line in particular that you want to tell us about?
3: Um, regarding the Zumo, I think the most important thing are those rider alerts uh, that, we, we, that we spoke about. Uh, I think that's very exciting, uh, specifically with the auto devices that we're coming out with now. Uh, I think there's a lot of exciting things that we're going to be able to implement from those devices into our Zumo line. So, I think it's it's I want to say it's it's going to happen. It's going to be included. But just by looking at the at the trends that we're starting to have with our auto devices, uh, we try to help implement those things as well into our motorcycle units. So it's it's a really exciting time for uh, for GPS devices for the motorcyclists in that case, because we're going to keep pushing the boundaries for these units and then hopefully keep all you guys happy with, with what we're coming out with. That's the goal.
1: Caesar. Thank you very much.
3: I appreciate it. Jimmy. have a good one.
1: BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter, too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Dressed Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. The crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves, so they know what you want when you're exploring the world. Visit them at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using this unique strapping system, and it's easy to switch from one bike to another. And of course... Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. You've got to check out the buckles, the straps, the whole bit. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com wraps up another episode of adventure rider radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it special thanks to our producer elizabeth martin and to you the listener thank you Well, remember, you can always drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. We have all kinds of episodes on here that you can look at and you can listen to. You can read information about them and you can listen to all the shows for free. Come on over, have a listen. We also have our Raw show. If you haven't heard of Raw already, it's called ARR Raw. It's a separate show. You'll need to subscribe separately. Again, it's free. You can go to our website, click on the Raw button and get all the information there. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. Hey, if you like what you're hearing and you want to help us out, drop by the website and click on the donate button. Anything $10 or more is going to get you a sticker. And we have new stickers coming out. Drop by the website and check out our new logo. Those are the stickers that will be going out. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. No excuses. My name is Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. See you next week.